So have you ever tried to make the best of a bad situation? Ever had a bad situation and you just, you know, needed to make the best of the situation? There was a student six months ago at the University of Buffalo. He sat down to do a research paper and maybe to get a little extra caffeine in his body, he decided to pop open some kind of carbonated drink. And when he did, that drink exploded all over the place. So he began to clean everything up and get everything wiped down and and begin to test everything out. And sure enough, as he tested, he discovered that no matter how many times he pressed the letter M on his keyboard, no longer worked. Now here's the bad part. The bad part was his paper that he was finishing up was due in four hours. And all of a sudden, the letter M did not work. So what did he do? Well, he very creatively came up with a cover letter to put with his paper. And this is what his cover letter said. Before I begin, I would like to take this opportunity to apologize sincerely for the grammatical errors you are about to see in this paper. The letter between L and N in the English alphabet just stopped working on my laptop's keyboard out of nowhere. I have no other devices to write this paper. I am so sorry. I realize how unprofessional this is, but I have no other choice. Therefore, unfortunately, whoever is unlucky enough to be assigned to grading this paper will have to just use their agonation and put that letter where it belongs and all the words without it. Thank you very much for understanding. Now, after he wrote the cover letter, he quickly realized that he could open up an old letter or old old paper that he had written and And he could cut and paste the M from that paper and then just start cutting and pasting an M every time he needed one. Now, this was awkward and very time-consuming. So he went on to say this, I tried to use every word without the letter M in it I could possibly think of. So with the cut and paste trick with the letter M, he decided not to turn in the cover letter with his paper, but he did turn it in anyway later on and showed the professor, and the professor thought he did a great job in a very difficult situation. It's something when you lose your M. But you know, sometimes in life we lose more than our M, right? We end up in situations in our life where the situation is bad, and we really do need to try to make the best of the situation. But that's not always easy, is it? In fact, it's even harder when the bad situation involves your spouse or your kids or your parents or your neighbor or your best friend or a teammate or a classmate or a workmate. So how do you make the best of a bad situation when it involves other people? How do you make the best of things when a relationship goes sour? Well, Apostle Paul is going to help us think through that. Listen to his letter to his friend Philemon, beginning with verse 15. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. So who was separated from who? Well, Onesimus was a slave, and he was separated from his owner, Philemon. Now, the word separate is kind of interesting that Paul uses here because actually Onesimus ran away from Philemon. He wasn't just separated. So why did he run away? Was Philemon a a terrible owner? Probably not. The reason we think that is because Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter. 
So if Philemon was a a harsh man, if he was an unjust man, if he was a difficult man, Paul would have probably found another way to try to communicate. But we do know that Onesimus ran away. We don't know why he ran away, but we know he ran about a thousand miles away, a little more than that, to Rome. And in a city of 800,000 people, he just happened to bump into the Apostle Paul, the man who actually led Philemon to Jesus. And Onesimus heard the gospel, the, the stunning, great, amazing gospel. He heard the gospel from Paul, just like Philemon had. And the same God who saved and redeemed Philemon saved and redeemed Onesimus. But he was still a runaway slave. His salvation did not magically and miraculously take away the fact that in that society he was a criminal outlaw. So at some point in the conversation, Paul said, look, you need to go back and make things right with Philemon. You need to head back. Onesimus had broken the law. He had broken Philemon's trust. He had cost Philemon money. He had created more work for the other slaves and servants in the house. And he needed to go back and make things right. Paul even said that later that he stole something from Philemon. We don't know what that was, but something of of value was actually stolen by Onesimus. No matter what category you try to put this story in, This was a strained relationship. This was a a bad situation, and there was some some sour feelings that were going to happen in this relationship. So how is Paul going to make the best of this bad situation? Well, the way he's going to do it is by using the word perhaps. The word perhaps brings some possibility into a conversation. Honey, perhaps... I ate the last piece of red velvet cake that was in the refrigerator in tinfoil with a post-it with your name on it. Perhaps I read it and ate it last night in a way to help you not gain weight for the holidays. Perhaps, you know, that's, that's what happened, you know, with your cake. Dad, per- perhaps me plowing over the mailbox last weekend with the car just opens up the opportunity for us to, to upgrade to that new mailbox that the Homeowners Association has been recommended, you know, for so long. Perhaps, Dad, that's, that's why it happened. Mrs. Griswold, perhaps I know you ordered that your convertible would be a platinum white in color, and it came back metallic P. But, you know, perhaps, Miss Griswold, this is going to save you money, and you don't have to go to the car wash as often. Perhaps. It's one of those words that brings possibility into a conversation. And Paul is not accidentally using the word perhaps in his letter to Philemon. He's trying to get Philemon to look at this whole situation with Onesimus running away, and he's trying to get him to look at it with different eyes. What kind of eyes? Well, he's wanting him to look at this through eyes that trust in the providence of God. What is the providence of God? Well, the word providence comes from the word provide, and the word provide means to supply the the need for something. So we could think of providence as the act of supplying a need for something. So in this scenario, what did Philemon need? Did Philemon need to lose money? Did Philemon need to have conflict at his house? Did he need to have conflict in his business? Did Philemon need to have something stolen from him? Were these needs in his life? No. (laughs) But again, Paul's trying to get him to 
look at these things in a completely different way, to see them with the eyes of the providence of God. Paul is saying, Philemon, what if perhaps Onesimus running away was was not just to create problems in your life? Philemon, what if perhaps Onesimus running away has something to do with something you're not seeing and you're not feeling right now? We've had moments like that, right? (laughs) Where what we're seeing and what we're feeling, we're, we're not sensing a whole lot of perhaps because it all seems bad in that moment. One of the greatest leaders that ever lived on the planet was a man named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers in very deceptive circumstances. And then many years later, he found himself standing face to face in front of his brothers. He was no longer a slave. He was now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He had the ability and the power and the authority to throw them in jail or even execute them. And so what does he say to his brothers in his moment of power and authority and vengeance and justice? What does he say to them? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph didn't strike them with his fist. He didn't strike out at them with the long arm of the law. He did not strike out at them with a guilt trip or or some kind of lecture. No, what Joseph did in that moment where he had the power was he forgave them. In the moment that he could have done whatever he wanted to do, what he wanted to do was forgive them. Why? Because he was believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to the providence of God. Listen again to his words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What's behind that statement? A lot. I came across a a list about Joseph's life. It's a a list that's really just kind of hard to think through. John Bloom put the list together, and this is how he described the list. It is a list of a startling and unnerving level of God's providential involvement in the details of Joseph's life. (laughs) Startling and unnerving to see the details of the providence of God behind Joseph's statement. It's a long list, so I'm not going to do everything on the list. I will post… I will post a link uh, at the end of my sermon notes on the website later today so you can go look at the whole list, but it's, it's an amazing list. And, and some of you don't know anything about Joseph, and, and if you don't, then I encourage you, go read Genesis chapter 30 through 50. His story is fascinating. But even if you know nothing about Joseph, if you just listen to this list, you can catch some glimpses of the plans of God in his life. And, and this list is a list of biblical and historical realities, and all of these biblical and historical realities are the exact things that God used for good 
in Joseph's life and the life of other people. So, just a few things here. Joseph's place in the birth order of the men used to create the nation of Israel was part of God's plan. That means his mother Rachel's agonizing struggle with infertility was part of God's plan. Joseph's prophetic dreams were part of God's plan. His brother's jealousy, sibling rivalry, family conflict. None of us have had any of that this week, right? All of those things were part of God's plan. His brother's evil, murderous, greedy betrayal of him and his brother Judah's part in it was part of God's plan. His brother's 20-plus year deception of their father Jacob regarding Joseph was part of God's plan. The existence of an evil slave trade at the time was part of God's plan. Slave owner Potiphar's complicity with the slave trade and his position in Egypt was part of God's plan. Joseph's favor with Potiphar was part of God's plan. Potiphar's wife's dishonesty was part of God's plan. Potiphar's unjust judgment of Joseph was part of God's plan. The particular prison Joseph went to was part of God's plan. Joseph's favor with the prison warden was part of God's plan. Pharaoh's being desperate enough to listen to a Hebrew prisoner was part of God's plan. Joseph having discernment of Pharaoh's dreams was part of God's plan. The miraculous amount of immediate trust that Pharaoh placed in Joseph's interpretation was part of God's plan. The threat of starvation that caused terrible fear and moved Jacob to send his sons all the way to Egypt for grain was part of God's plan. The success with which Joseph was able to continue to conceal his identity from his brothers was part of God's plan. His brother Judah's willingness to exchange his life for his other brother Benjamin out of love for his father and thus initiating his own sale into slavery like he initiated Joseph's sale into slavery was part of God's plan. And Joseph's timing in revealing himself to his brothers was part of God's plan. That's not even the whole list. This this is an amazing picture, and that's what's behind. You meant evil against me, but God, no, God meant it for good. Paul's echoing that same thing to Philemon. He's trying to get Philemon to see, Philemon, what if Onesimus running away was, was meant for good? Now, does that mean it's okay to break the law? No, because <laughs> that's what Onesimus did by running away. He was, he was breaking the law. Does that mean that it's no big deal for you to purposefully or dramatically or casually dishonor your boss or dishonor your husband or dishonor your wife or dishonor your parents or dishonor your kids or dishonor anybody in a position of authority or friendship in your life? No, that's not what it means. When Paul uses the word perhaps, all he's really trying to do is this. He's trying to get us to see and understand that if we're going to profess to be a Christian, that we must, because of our profession of faith in Jesus, we must fight to look at things through the eyes of God's providence. We must. Has someone ever come up to you and 
asked you to do something and you responded with, okay, I'll, I'll take care of that, or yeah, I'll see to that. John Piper writes this, Providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. He'll see to that. <laughs> Whatever it is, he'll see to that. See, when we can't see, when we don't want to see, when we're angry at what we see, God is seeing the universe. He is seen to the universe. He is seen to that. Piper goes on. God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. When God sees, he sees too. His seeing is always with a view to doing. Where he patrols, he controls. Sometimes we don't like to hear those things. They, they make us a little uncomfortable. Because we like to feel that we are in control of our own lives. We don't like the notion that God is. Or on the flip side, we look at all the sin and all the evil and all the tragedy in the world and, and we hear about this God who's always acting and we say, well, wait a minute, why isn't he acting to stop this? Why isn't he acting to prevent this? Why isn't he starting this and performing this? Why is he not caring for this and controlling this? In other words, we're like, hey, wait a minute, is there an answer for evil and suffering in the world? There's a lot of answers for evil and suffering in the world. We'll just take one here in the life of Joseph. Joseph was someone whose life was full of evil and suffering and difficulties and trials and tribulations and troubles. So what is his answer to all of those things? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's, that's his answer. His answer was, I'm, I'm trusting in the providence of God, even though I don't understand it and can't see it sometimes. I'm trusting. Many would say that is an ignorant, arrogant, foolish, cruel way to think about evil and suffering in the world. And I would completely and totally agree with them, except for Jesus. You see, Jesus has changed the math of the universe. Because the most ignorant, arrogant, foolish, cruel thing on the surface is the notion and the reality that the Son of the Most High God would be crucified to deal with the penalty of sin so that terrorists and teachers and pastors and prostitutes and surgeons and scam artists so that Democrats and Republicans and Americans and Russians, Canadians and Cambodians, red and yellow, black and white, those who are evil and harmful, those who are harmless and helpless and hopeless, so that any and all of those folks could be saved and redeemed and rescued and set free. Yeah, on the surface... The crucifixion of Jesus sounds cruel, but God meant it for my good, and God meant it for your good. 
Now, does that make God some kind of parent of, of cosmic child abuse, you know, that he would purposely put his son on a, a cross, crush him, as the Scripture says, for our salvation? No, it doesn't make him an abusive parent. It simply means this, that God saw your greatest need, and before you were even born, he said, I'll see to that. I will see to that. You know, if I'm honest, there's far too many days when I feel like the greatest need of my life is for my wife to do right by me, for my kids to do right by me, for my kids to do good in school and get a good education and get a good job. You know, there's a lot of days in my life where I think that the most important need in my life is for my health to be good. The most important need in my life is for my doctor to be some kind of all-knowing God to know everything that's going on. The most important need in my life is for the insurance to cover all the cost. The most important need in my life is for my car to work right or for my phone to work right or, or for anything else in my life just to, just to work right. The greatest need in my life is for my stocks to win or for my candidate to win or for my team to win. Most days, that's really how I think. But if I'm really, really, really honest with myself, I know that the greatest need in my life is that when I breathe my last, that the wrath of God will pass over me. That's the greatest need in my life. And the reason that it will is because I have believed and I am believing and I will always believe in the Son of the Most High God who gave himself up for me. And that for every heartache in my life, for every pain in my life, for every sin in my life, I can look to the cross, this cruel crucifixion of Jesus as my greatest hope. And when I see the evil and the sin and the tragedy in the world, I can look to the cross because it is the hope of all hopes over all evil, over all sin, over all tragedy. On the surface, it seems cruel, but the cross was meant for my good and your good, and the cross is good. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this is what Paul wrote, reading from the, the Amplified Classic Version. For our light and momentary affliction, this slight distress of the passing hour, now just to be fair, when we're in the moments of affliction and distress, they don't feel light, momentary, or passing, which is exactly why Paul wrote this. For our light, momentary affliction, this slight distress of the passing hour is ever more and more abundantly preparing and producing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory. What kind of glory? Beyond all measure, excessively surpassing all comparisons and all calculations of vast and transcendent glory and blessedness never to cease. Never to cease. Just to put that in context, one day everything in your bank account will cease to be yours. Won't be yours. Everything in your garage will cease to be yours. Everything in your workshop will cease to be yours. Everything in your closet will cease to be yours. 
Every stressful situation in your marriage will cease. Every stressful situation with your parents will cease. Every stressful situation with your kids will cease. Every stressful situation at at work, at church, at home, at school, wherever it may be, those stressful situations will cease. And every tragic and sinful and evil and criminal news story will cease. But the abundant excessively surpassing and transcendent blessings and promises of God in and through Jesus Christ will never cease. Never. You may say, that sounds great, but you don't know what I've been going through this week. And I, I'm not feeling the promises of God. I'm not, I'm not feeling the blessings of God. Okay, fair enough. Let me call on C.S. Lewis just to help our minds a little bit. C.S. Lewis said this. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. In other words, this is awful right now. So don't talk to me about heaven. I don't want to hear about heaven I don't want to hear about Jesus in heaven because this stinks now. So he says, some will say, you know, no future bliss will ever make up for this. But then he goes on. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's an amazing promise of the gospel. You see, every single picture about the truth of Jesus Christ shows us that that this is true, that this amazing reality is that Jesus is working for us right now, that Jesus has been working for us, that Jesus will work for us, and the beauty and the glory of the everlasting truth of the gospel and salvation in Jesus Christ means that even Jesus is working backwards for us. And that one day we will be satisfied once and for all and forever. That's just who he is. And that's, that's who God is. And see, that, that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's trying to pull Philemon to that. He's trying to get Philemon to look through some different eyes and say, Hey, what if perhaps God was working through this kind of gross, frustrating situation with Onesimus and he was doing something for good. What kind of good could God be doing? Listen to the rest of verse 15 and on to 16. That you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you? Both in the flesh and in the Lord. My friends, Brad and Jason, are are brothers. Brad's the oldest, Jason's the youngest. They grew up in the same Southern Baptist church that my wife grew up in. When they were both around seven, eight, nine years old, I think, they um, made a profession of faith in Jesus. They were baptized, and then they spent the next 15 to 20 years lost and dead in their sin. They were never saved. And their story of conversion is, is always humbling when I remember that I just happened to be around to watch it and be a part of it. And so 15 or 20 years later, they were, they were truly converted. And both of them now serve as, as pastors. 
And, and a couple of years after they were both saved, they were sitting at Jason's house in Fort Worth, Texas, and, and they were just sitting there talking. And I don't know who turned to the other one first and said it, but, but one looked at the other and just said, dude, you're a miracle. And the other one looked back at him and he said, you're a miracle too. And they just sat there in stunned joy that they were saved. And there was no other explanation than it was a miracle of God that they were saved. Listen, I want you to know, if you're saved, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Because the Scripture says that before we're saved, we're dead in our sins. And dead people don't save themselves. Dead people don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Dead people have to be brought to life. And the gospel says that through Jesus Christ that God has made us alive. Because see, we're like Onesimus. We would be running, running, running away. Paul is pointing Philemon to a miracle in his life. When he says perhaps, he's he's trying to get Philemon to remember, hey dude, you are a miracle. And he's wanting Philemon to to look up from this letter. And with tears in his eyes, he wants to look at his runaway slave. And he wants him to say, Onesimus, you are a miracle. And he wants Onesimus to look back at Philemon and to repeat the same words. You are a miracle too. Does that mean that in this fantastic moment of acknowledging their salvation, that suddenly... Onesimus was no longer going to be a slave. That Philemon was just going to forgive all and and remove everything. Maybe, maybe not. But here's the, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is even if nothing in your immediate circumstance changes, your soul has changed forever. The miracle applies. And the miracle of salvation is stronger than any man and stronger than any man-made laws. And the miracle of salvation reminds us that God is for us, He is with us, and He is working for us even when He's working backwards for us. Joseph knew that to be true. He had experienced it his whole life. He had seen and and known and watched the providence of God. And even when he couldn't see it, even when he couldn't feel it, God was gracious and kind to remind him that it was still true. And the story of Joseph and the story of Onesimus and the story of Philemon, Paul's letter, all of these stories, all of these words, all of this letter are trying to speak to me and to you today as well. John Bloom says this, the detailed narrative of Joseph's life, among many other things, is a loving letter from your good shepherd. He goes on, the same good shepherd who guided Joseph through green pastures and the valley of the shadow of death, pursuing him with good all the days of his life. And why? Why do we have Joseph's story written down in the Bible for us. Why do we have this this letter from Paul to Philemon? This is why. 
to remind you that no matter what you are experiencing, sweet or bitter, good or evil, no matter how long it has lasted, God has not left you alone. He is with you. He is working all things together for good. And He will be with you to the end. That is the promise of heaven that works backward, forward, and right now. The Most High God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, will be with you to the end. And then you will never tire of the desire to be with Him forever.